Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. And today I'm very honored to have as my guest road manager and music aficionado, Marty Kramer. We'll be talking about his life working with some of the biggest acts in the history of music, like Burton Cummings, Randy Bachman, Ringo Starr, Led Zeppelin, many more. Uh, Marty's been in the music business for well over 50 years, and he is in that time has basically done everything. He's been everywhere, so he has a lifetime of experiences to share, and someone that I know reasonably well. So thanks for joining me today, Marty. How are you, my friend? I'm tremendous, Dan, and thanks for having me. I appreciate well, it. Appreciate having you on, and uh, like I said, you've done just about everything. I mean, you uh, you came out of Winnipeg, I guess, right. many many years ago, and 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 I guess the story. Well, j- just so so people know that are listening, you know, you and I have worked together quite a few times, right. and we've known each other quite a bit over the years. Many and years, many many. So I I know most of your story, and and we're gonna we're gonna share it with people, and it's great. So I'm happy to be able to do that. So your background, you came out of Winnipeg, and you were you were friends with Burton, I guess. You decided right. to. I get came in. out of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Canada. And when I was like 14 years of age, for the sake of discussion, uh, I met Burton. Uh, He was in a band called the Devrons. I ended up uh, meeting him of all places in a pool hall. And uh, we were waiting around uh, to get a table. And he was standing there and I was standing there. And I guess he might have been waiting for somebody. I might have been waiting for somebody. And I said, hey, uh, who are you next or am I next kind of thing? And he says, whatever. He said, you want to shoot a game together? That way we got the table. So that was the first actual meeting of Burton Cummings, not knowing who he was or what he was. I I lived in West Codona and he lived in the North End. Uh, yeah. I went to a different school than he. So the bottom line, I said, what do you do? He says, oh, I work in the music business. And what do you do? Well, you know, I'm still going to school and weekend jobs and whatever odd jobs. So he says, oh, we've got a band. I said, oh, really? I said, uh, what's it called? He said, the Devrons. I says, never heard of them, which is true. I never did hear them. (laughs) He says, uh, do you want to um, come down and hear us? He says, uh, we rehearse once a week. So in those days, you didn't have text and you didn't have uh, iPhones and uh, faxes and so on and so forth. So he says, here. Write my number down. He used to write people's numbers down on pieces of paper. Inadvertently, you'd lose them. But in this case, I wrote it down on the famous cigarette package. You used to write everything down. You used to tear either the top of the cigarette package or inside. Uh, I would take the foil out and write on the paper behind it on the cardboard. So I wrote his number down and uh, I said, sure, I'd love to come. So the first time I came, he introduced me as a friend from the pool hall. I listened to the guys. They were doing cover stuff, the the usual uh, mid-60s cover. And so this I, would have been 65, 64? I would say early 65. Uh, yeah, okay. early 65. And then uh, one thing led to the other, and he says, oh, you know, uh, we want to showcase and we want to uh, play somewhere. Well, you, in those days, you had your community clubs, you had your school dances, you had functions. It was like totally unheard of to to be able uh, to open for anybody. You know, it, it was unheard of. Mm-hmm. You were always somebody that just came there and you usually got pop and potato chips and you, you got a little bit of food and uh, very little money, if any. And that was it. So you did it for the fun of it, for the fun of the music and that. So one thing led to the other. And um, I sat in on maybe two, three rehearsals. And after that, I said, you guys sound pretty good. And he said, yeah, I wish we could do something 
beyond just rehearsing in everybody's basement. They go to each other's houses and rehearse there. So I just said, leave it with me. Well, I knew nothing about nothing. Mm. And I guess that was my shoe in to, how should we say, booking a band the first time I ever did anything of that consequence. So phone book, you yeah. look up all these community centers, you try in your area. And I think one of the very uh, first ones, believe it or not, was a church dance at St. Martin's in the field on Smithfield. They had a church hall uh, adjacent to the chapel and everything. So I phoned up, uh, talked to the social committee and said, listen, are you people going to have any dances or what? Well, we've never really done it. So I said, look, I'd like to come in there and see what we can do. Well, to me, it was just a form of getting the exposure for the band, Dan, and getting in, them into a bigger environment out of a basement. Yeah. So I put them in there, and it was a good success. I think uh, we got five bucks, and everybody got a dollar, which was fine. And I got 10%. I automatically said, hey, you know, I got you guys this deal. So you guys got a buck each. There's five of you. How about 50 cents for me? So they mulled it over. Yeah, okay, you get 50 cents. So then I started to keep a log, yeah. like one of these daytimer kind of things. And that was my first entry, made 50 cents at St. Martin's in the field. Then I just started to phone the community clubs, and it grew, and it yeah. got bigger and bigger until finally we were a name to be reckoned with in Winnipeg, and we were actually the most popular band and there were tons of them Dan. there was like every yeah. area had their own how should we say local band then they used to do what they call these battle of the bands and then the djs would come out and listen to you and if you won the battle of the band well then the radio station presented you somewhere at a car show or to drive in or somewhere yeah. all that went on for let's say three, four years from 65 to maybe 69, thereabouts. And I, I can't remember exactly when Burton was asked to join the Guess Who because of Chad Allen's departure. But in the meantime, he did get asked, and it went from that yeah. to the Guess Who. So that was the early year. That oh, was the, the yeah. Burton company yeah. that uh, we all grew up with in Winnipeg. School guy, grade 11, I think he left school. I left in 10, grade 10. And yeah. uh, that was that. Well, it's yeah, it's funny. You, uh, It was sort of an accident, right? Like yeah, it, totally, an, uh, totally <laughs> unplanned. Knew nothing, Dan. Absolutely yeah. nothing about how to book a band, how to do anything. But at the end of the day, I, I, all I know is, and this is a true story, and, and the listeners will probably be really get a kick out of this, with that 50 cents in those days, Dan, you could get a hot dog, chips, a drink, a bubble gum, a red, and a black licorice. Yeah. Now, that was the 50 cent commission. Now, on a good night, when we go out to eat afterwards to the local uh, restaurant or whatever, of course, those guys had the dollar. I had the 50 cents. And when, what would you like? What would you like? But when we got the food, Dan, Burton and the guys would have gravy on their chips. That was five cents extra, Dan. I didn't have that five cents. So on the good nights, the band, of course, I'd always let them go first. 
then Burton and I would grab our tray, and then he'd step up. What would you like, sir? And he'd order uh, same fries with gravy. Then I it would be my turn. She'd say, you're next. And he says, oh, before before you order, my, uh, he would say to the waitress, uh, to the woman, the cashier, uh, by the way, uh, put gravy on his fries and I'll pay for it. Yeah, well, now, that was that was the highlight of my life was to get an extra hit of five cents so that I got gravy on my fries. And that's a true story. So I guess when you met Burton, you had no idea what a wild ride you'd be, you were about to take. and No uh, idea, not, yeah. nothing. Isn't that cool? And and the thing with you, like, uh, you know, having worked with you as much as I have, but, uh, you know, your main skill, what, what do you, what's your main skill? I mean, you're organizing, you're corralling people, you're kind of herding cats. You're Yeah, my main skill, if you can, if you could believe this, Dan, when we did the Almost Almost Famous that you mentioned to your listeners earlier. Yeah, we're going to talk about that for sure. The uh, producer asked me for a list and he, and it's like, what do you do? Yeah. And believe it or not, it's a 26-point <laughs> list that I submitted to them. They said, we have no idea. But I noticed that in your introduction, you said Marty Kramer, road manager. But I used to have it as Marty Kramer, tour slash road manager. Because yeah. when I did the tours, I was the tour manager. When we did the road uh, things around town and that local, it wasn't a tour. It was just weekend venues and that yeah. I was the road manager and also personal manager. So I, I wore quite a few hats yeah. over the years, you know? Well, you're a high energy guy. And the thing I was always liked about you is that you're, you're going to make it happen. So you're the guy that walks in and, and you'll kind of look around and scan the whole landscape and anything that needs to be done or looked after, you're going to make it happen. And so it's really a broad job description, right? I mean, you've, you've done yeah. basically everything and especially, well, we'll talk about the, the almost, almost famous, which is, yes. I got lots of stories about that. Sure. You? But, um, so that, that basically is your skill is just the high energy and you're, you're going to make things happen. And, and True. so it's setting up the stage, it's, it's the rooms, you know, everything. So, and it's a tough business and you've survived in it, which is, which is kind of a testament to your fortitude as well. And uh, I understand you avoided the rock and roll lifestyle too, right? You didn't get caught up. Yeah, in the... I I felt that if if I took part in what they're doing, somebody had to be sane at the end of the day. Yeah, and if if it wasn't me, uh, what kind of uh, uh, outlook would you have? What kind of future would you have in this business? Because uh, you know the artists the band members, they get caught up in stuff. They've got enough on their plate, let alone get caught up in the aftermath, after a show, after uh, after parties, staying up all night, uh, unable to sing, unable to appear in public. Yeah. So I was one from the early, as long as I can remember, Dan, I was one that advocated zero tolerance before zero tolerance was even introduced. Yeah. I just said, look, guys, what you do, you do. I don't want to see it on the stage. I don't want to see it backstage. That's why I was a stickler for nobody, Dan, yeah. on stage except the artist, the monitor guy, the stage manager, any type of a technician that needed to be there. When those performances went on, the only person that stayed in that wing was me. 
Yeah. I didn't let anybody in there. So I felt by doing that, I eliminated any problem and there could be a distraction or we need you here or something happened here. Yeah. I didn't want to know about that. Once I put that band on stage, especially Burton, and I was I was the go-to guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, consequently, I got this tag, Get Marty, which the CBC did a half an hour with Burton, myself, and other people from Winnipeg DJs and that. Yeah. It was available on Vimeo. I, don't I, know I did watch it. Yeah, no, it's on there. I did watch okay, it. Okay, so needless to say, that gives you a little bit of a, a perspective. Like when Burton comments something to the effect of, uh, Marty has got uh, the best road chops in the business. Well, yeah. Yeah. that used to be our uh, pet thing. Road chops meant that you had the stamina, the ability to do it. Get out there, give it your 101, and then yeah. do it again the next day, the next day, the next day. And, and you couldn't do that under the influence of alcohol and or drugs or lack of sleep Dan and you know yeah. that as a singer yeah. and a guitar player yourself well I appreciate that and and I know what you're saying too you're you're the go-to guy you're the guy that people have to rely on right so if you say well we got to fix something here let's get Marty he's gonna you know <laughs> we gotta we gotta get it done whether it's 60 minutes 75 minutes an extension of time a shortage of time a delay and I always prided myself Dan in starting the show on time if you booked me and you said Marty you're on from eight till nine. That didn't mean I went on at 8.15, yeah. Dan. It didn't mean I went on at 7.45. And it didn't mean I stayed on till 8.15. You told me 8 till 9, guess what? That's where I am. I'm on. When you drop, when you drop your hand, let's go. We started. And we, end, we always started on time and ended on time. So... Just going back to Burton now, you went, you were with him for 27 years, right? Like you guys. On the road, 27 years, inseparable. Everywhere he went. I went. It was like we were joined at the shoulder, uh, and it was like we were Siamese twins. Yeah, and you looked after him real well. And I guess so in Vancouver, I saw Burton a couple times in Vancouver, 77, 79, I think. You would have been on those shows in the back with, then Henry Small was with the band and stuff too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Henry was small, Jim Phillips, uh, all those guys. Any configuration, Danny Weiss, yeah. uh, Jim Gordon, whoever came and went, they went through me. I was always the one, like Burton would come to me and he would say, okay, listen, I'm a solo artist. I'm recording for Portrait. Yeah. I'm in Los Angeles because he moved away from Winnipeg eventually, went to Los Angeles. Now he's back in Canada. But anyways, uh, he would say, we got to put a band together and uh, we got to get this done. And uh, I'd say, who do you want? He'd always have uh, a list of who he wanted. And I said, okay, let me take care of it. So consequently... When you have somebody's phone number, a contact, and you phone them up and you say, hi, this is Marty Kramer. Who? Uh, well, I represent Burton Cummings. Oh, uh, yeah, we're yeah. looking for a guitar player. I'm in. Or a bass player. I'm in. Yeah. So you have the pick of the litter, Dan, but you also have some standbys. I prided myself in having that stable of musicians. Yeah, no, that's good. And and I have such a respect for Burton's talent. You know, he's the real deal and one of oh, my absolutely. favorite singers. And I, I learned to sing listening to Burton, you know, and the Guess Who was my favorite band for many years when I was growing up and stuff. So, 
Oh, yeah. The talent that came out of there, not to take away from Kurt Winter, Bill Wallace, Donnie McDougal, Greg Lescu, Dominic Troiano, every one of those guys was a key ingredient in the success of that yeah. hit-making machine. Yeah, and then Burton at the, at the head of it. So what, tell me tell me some of your favorite Burton stories that, uh, over the years. Well, there's so, you know, you can go from uh, show to uh, behind the scenes to whatever. I mean, uh, one of the best times I had was when we ended a tour and he said, uh, we're going to Maui for a month. Well, in those days, I didn't even know where Maui was, let alone <laughs> get a first class ticket, fly to Maui with Burton after a tour, and then Shep Gordon, who had a live enterprises that looked after uh, Teddy Pendergrass and um, uh, Alice Cooper and all these guys in those days, as well as America uh, with myself doing uh, Burton uh, touring and everything. Uh, he had a summer getaway there, Dan, and he gave that place to us with a Jeep and everything for mm. a month. So we did a month in Very Maui. Nice. And my biggest thrill was Burton had finished recording a bunch of songs, roughs and that in LA brought them out on the road. And he would always play them for me on these cassette players in his room after the show and say, I'm just going to finish this one up or I'm going to do that one. What yeah. happened was we went to, to Maui. And in those days I had one of these VHS recorders so you're walking around trying to capture everything that this guy's doing and document it and inadvertently he would say let's go up there's a road to hana it's like a 70 mile drive up into the mountains like you're in heaven god's truth i don't think you could get any higher it's like envisioning yourself on the ground in the jack and the beanstalk movie getting on to that beanstalk and going into the heavens. You just keep riding and winding and going and, uh, until there's no people. You're, you, nature, and Burton Cummings, we're up there. We're in the middle of nowhere. We're on this road to Hana. And he says, I want to shoot all these different excerpts of my songs. I want to do videos here. Yeah. So I said, fine. So in one of them, he says, let's stop. There was a tsunami there. And it had taken out a large portion of the landscape. So he says, let's stop here. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to wade a little bit away from shore. And I'm going to go out there. And I'm going to be singing with the tide coming in then. Okay. Oh, oh. I'm standing on the ground. I'm standing on land. He goes into the water, into this, like this lagoon. All of a sudden, this water goes from being... 10 feet away from him to up to his waist. Oh. Meanwhile, he loses his alligator shoes in the water. They're like slip-ons. They're floating out. The tide comes in and there's a wave. And you can see these things wash towards me, then wash out again. And he's literally on his hands and knees in about uh, a foot of water, grabbing his shoes out of the water. One of the funniest things... I've ever encountered. Another <laughs> so one was, were, we were up in Nowheresville. There's a bunch of cows. And he says to me, let's do a video of me 
singing to the cows. Okay, fine. So I'm in the Jeep. He gets out of the Jeep. He was driving. I was sitting in the driver's seat. I turn the camera on. He walks over to the cows. Well, the cows are about 10 feet away. Well, when they see people, they don't know whether you're coming to feed them or what. They're fairly domesticated. So they start coming towards them. Now, we had a cassette player. So when he got the cows got close enough, he motioned to me to press the cassette player, and he would do a lip sync to the song. So it's the funniest thing. He starts singing to the cows. The cows look at him. I look at the cows and do a close-up with him in the forefront and them in the background. They turn around, Dan. They walk away. (laughs) Then they get about four feet away. One of them proceeds to plop the biggest droppings I've ever seen in my life. And another one takes a whiz, like flooded the hole uh, behind the fence, and it was running out onto the driveway where we were, and he's yelling, we got to get out of here, quick, and jump back in, and that was like a cut. So that was the craziness that we got ourselves into. It was such such a fun thing, or he would sit in Shep's, uh, there was a pool table and there was a ping pong table and we'd uh, play sports and we'd go swimming and boogie boarding in the ocean and that. And then he would sit with an acoustic guitar and he would mimic the songs, but he would sing them, say, in a different key or a yeah. different lyric as what I call an outtake, for lack of better words. And the funniest one that I can remember was was a big rainstorm. And right after that came a rainbow. And Cummings says to me, oh, the rainbow's just got to be over the other side of that hill there. Well, you know how they are. They go forever and they land either in the ocean or they land on land. But you never really, for the sake of discussion, see the end of the rainbow then. And he says, oh, this old myth that if you see the end of the rainbow, there's going to be a pot of gold there. So let's chase the rainbow. Okay, let's chase the rainbow. He's driving. We get to the end of the rainbow. There's nothing there. It goes like right into a rock formation. So I'm shooting this. He gets out. Unbeknownst to me, Dan, he decides that he has to urinate. So he starts urinating while I'm filming the uh, rainbow. And all you hear is the splatter on the rocks of the urination. And he said, oh, you haven't got that on uh, uh, play, do you? I says, never mind play. I've got it on record. (laughs) But I didn't show any of him. Uh, Nobody would really know unless you followed the whole thing who it was. And the end to that story is the funniest thing because when he meets his wife-to-be and he goes over to the family house for dinner and he says you're not going to believe this i've got a tape of myself when i was in maui well of course all the songs that i told you about he has those on there he forgets that the rainbow is on there (laughs) so he's playing this and you can imagine everybody's intently they've had dinner every they're sitting and watching tv they're howling dan because all these things are really funny and it's him 
singing his, the songs from his new album. Right. And all of a sudden, it's like, hey, let's go and follow the rainbow. And then you see this, and she sees this, and the parents see it. Well, he immediately oh, oh, stops oh. it. Duh. Well, <laughs> I don't know what happened there. That should have never. And then, of course, the next day, I get a phone call. Are you completely crazy? What are you doing? I told you that I was taking this to my to, to my wife-to-be's family. Why didn't you edit that out? I said, you did not say that. You said to me, give me that tape. I'll give it back to you. I didn't have a chance to edit it down. I said, do you think for the life of me that I would ever let that be seen? So he said, no, I agree. And that was one of the funniest uh, times, uh, the funniest times. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing some of these uh, personal stories with, with Burton and stuff. So listen, I'm going to take a short break and then we'll come back and I want to ask you about the Randy Bachman years and, and the time he spent with that. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Marty Kramer. Hey, do you want to hear about new episodes before they go live? Then join the Liner Notes VIP community. You'll be able to listen to the weekly podcast before the general public. Plus the episodes have no ads, breaks or interruptions of any kind. You'll also hear exclusive bonus episodes and be the first to know about upcoming guests. To check out the details and become a member, go to linernotes.ca. Now let's get back to our special guest. Okay, right on. We're back with Marty Kramer talking about uh, his life, uh, meeting Burton Cummings and then being involved at the Guess Who and Burton's uh, solo career for many years. And and uh, then you got together with Randy. I guess you did some uh, a, a few years with Randy as well. And 20. 20, 20 years. Okay. And then you ended up doing the Ringo's All-Star Band with him That's and right, stuff and too. the Rolling Stones and uh, oh. the Who. I ended up, uh, how it worked was once you got to a plateau in those days, unlike these days, uh, you became an entity, not like a household word, but people said, well, he can do it or get Marty yeah. or whatever. And I was fortunate enough to be plugged in to the most prominent promoters in the world at that time yeah. who did all the national touring acts then. Yeah. So what happened was in some cases, I was fortunate enough to be called upon to do work for them in the off time. Yeah. And sometimes I even ended up managing some bands and doing two tours, being on one, like actually being out on the road on one and head manning the other one from the phone and from the fax in those days and texting yeah. to get it done. And one of those instances was the guess who reunion in 2000, where I did the whole thing, the 43 nights. Wow. And then I also secured the management of Mountain, uh, rest in peace, Leslie West, with Corky Lang and uh, 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 Richie Scarlett from Ace Freely's band, a, a power trio. Oh. And I signed a management deal with them. And I said, look, I can't be with you guys because I'm going out on the Guess Who reunion tour. Fortunately for me, Dan, I got, had the, all the bookings in place. I did do the inaugural the inaugural yep. in Florida where I met them for the first time. I had met them on the festival express when I was the stage manager going across Canada on the train with the band and Janis Joplin and all oh, the, you were on that trip. I was a stage manager. Oh, very cool. I had no idea. Yeah, it's not, and when you look at festival express, I'm the guy with the crazy hair 
uh, and we used to stage act after act after act. While one act was playing, we were staging the other one in the in behind on risers. Yeah. And as soon as that act finished, it we wheeled them up. And I was also the driver of the artist. I would take them back and, while the guys were performing, and I had to be back and forth. Well, Winnipeg, you're only 15 minutes away from where you have to be at any time. Yeah. So it wasn't really a difficult task. And it was a fun task. I was I, I drove Janis Joplin. I hung out with Jerry Garcia and the guys. That's where I actually first met Mountain, oh. and I loved them. And then, ironically, uh, forty years later, thirty years later, I ended up managing them. Oh, so cool? it was totally, totally bizarro. And and in those days, uh, like you said in the earlier conversation, you wear many many hats. Yeah. And sometimes they're thankful. Sometimes they're not. Most of the time, it's hell because they dump on you. They're not going to dump on their bandmates, yeah. and they're not going to dump on people that they don't know. They're going to dump on you, whether they dump on you in public or publicly or in front of people. That's depends. But for the most part, you have to really uh, dot the I's and cross the T's very carefully. And I always found that shooting from the hip uh, telling it like it is and being real and being honest were the best policies. And I always said, take a negative, make it a positive. And I also, one of my famous sayings over the years was share the brackets. If you and I were talking about something and I gave you an idea for a song and you went and penned that song and I gave you a verse or something, Share it. Yeah. Don't say, oh, Dan here. Oh, yeah, I, I wrote that song. <laughs> what about Marty? Oh, yeah, he was our manager. Yeah. When I gave you a verse or something. Yeah. And those were my biggest things. I was a stickler for honesty. I was a stickler for being on time. I was a stickler for being straight. And I think that's why I got through it all that. Well, and, and also, I've, I mean, I've seen you in action lots of times, but you're you're intense, but you're also diplomatic and you got to kind of play it back and forth because you got to make things happen, but you got to be diplomatic about it too. Exactly. So you, you're real good that way because you ride the middle line really well. So, yeah, but you got to work with some great guys. I mean, what, what experiences did anything blow your mind? Like, were you ever in an experience like, like the Ringo's all-star band or those well, kinds Ringo of Ringo all-star band. The first time I met, well, you see the prelude to, to, to doing Ringo's band and being asked to do it was that I, I got a phone call from David Fishoff, who's a multimillionaire who was a manager of baseball players. And then he decided to go into the rock and roll business. Okay. Then he had an agency in New York. Then he ended up buying uh, an apartment block. And on the ground hmm. floors were his offices, and he lived upstairs, Dan. What a cool thing that was. So I yeah. said, wow, this guy is amazing. And one of his agents represented... Kale's guess who, not Burton and Randy and yeah. that because Kale and yeah. Peterson ended up with the name. And their guy at the time became ill and how he had a 15-day tour booked. Well, of course, I had worked for Burton. Then, like you said, I came to Randy, which we'll touch on in a second. But in the meantime, there was this lull. After Burton, there was a bit of a lull. So I could do this. I didn't have to ask anybody's permission. I got a phone call. Can you do Kale's Guess who? Yeah. And I thought about it and I said, do I, don't I? Well, I'm not with Burton anymore. I never knew Randy was going to call. So I said, yes, I'm going to do it. So I went out 
and had the luxury of doing that. As a result, I met David for the first time through one of his agents. We got to be friendly. Yeah. And then he said to me, is there anybody uh, that you're representing now? And I said, no. And he says, is there anybody you're touring with? I says, well, Howie called me to do this Guess Who thing. He says, well, listen, I've got a roster if you're interested. So I said, run it by me, Dan. So he says to me, well, how would you like to be the uh, tour manager for the monkeys? Oh. I said, okay, I'm in. So I ended up doing the monkeys. Oh wow. oh, wow. Then he says, how would you like to do the Super 70s Fest 50 Nights in America? I said, what's that? So he says, uh, Dr. Hook, Rare Earth, Grand Funk Railroad, the Guess Who, Kale and Petersons, and BTO. Mm. I said, five bands. He yeah. says, yeah. yeah. I said, well, the Guess Who I know, and Randy I knew from the Guess Who. So I said, fine. So he says, so you're the tour manager for these five acts. Wow, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> and that was called the Super 70s Fest. Jeez. So I did 43 nights wow. with that, which was totally unbelievable. Yeah. Then one thing leads to another. Then I met Randy more on a personable uh, level. And he says, oh, I hear you've left Cummings. And I said, yes. This was around uh, uh, 83, Dan, for okay. the sake of discussion. Yeah. So uh, he says, how would you like to come and work for us? I said, who? He said, Fred, myself, and Timmy. Well, yeah. that's three out of the uh, four because Robbie wasn't there at the time. Yeah. And either was Blair. So he said, and we've got Gary Peterson on drums. Yeah. I said, oh, well, I've got the guess who drummer. I've got Fred and Randy. And I've got Timmy, his brother. Yeah. Uh, I'm in. Now, this was after the Bruce Allen heyday, after all the good that Bruce did for them and took them world class. Oh, yeah. So I went. They were at the top. They went right down the ladder. And I've always uh, stated that rock and roll, Dan, is like playing snakes and ladders. Yeah. If you land on the right spot and you go up the ladder, you might have saved yourself three to five years in the business. Yeah. But if you go up real fast and then suddenly you're almost there and you land on the wrong dot, yeah. you're right back where you started from. Oh, yeah. That's that's the more common than the other way, right? <laughs> exactly. So having said that, Randy said we – Toured all over the world. Uh, we were the biggest band. We had three albums, which made more money than 17 of the Guess Who yeah. albums. Uh, grossed more money. And he said, how would you like to be a part of it? So I said, fine. No Bruce Allen. No, no, nobody. No. Okay. So I took that over. Nice. Inside of one year, Dan, I took them out of the basement, which they had been in, and brought them up substantially uh financially as well as exposure wise yeah and then it's the same thing people change band members change but it's still the one thing as you and i both know it's about the songs yeah. it's about the music people don't really care if dan Hare sings it marty kramer sings it or the guy that wrote it sings it 
things happen. Yeah. So as long as you deliver the songs to the people, yeah. it's irrelevant. Yeah. I've always said, if you're going to cover a song, cover it as cover it as good as the original or even better. Yeah. And there have been cases that 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 has happened. That's always been that's always been my driving you know, motivator. Yeah. I've always wanted to be the best, but I was going to ask you about the, the fake guess who, because Burton Cummings has made lots of negative comments about the cover band and the, the fake guess. Well, who. there's <laughs> low, listen, you got to understand something. When you become a solo artist like Burton did and you abandon the name and Randy goes on to bigger and better things in BTO and you abandon the name, the other guys, for God's sakes, have to make a living. Then. Yeah. Right. They got to put food on the table. Bottom line is they came to them. They came, uh, Gary and Jim came to Randy and Burton and said, look, you guys aren't going to do anything with this name, right? No. Can we have the name? They gave them the name. Okay. Both Randy and Burton to clear up all doubt in the music business. The name was given voluntarily by Burton and Randy to Jim and Gary. Okay. Now, you cannot blame guys for wanting to make a living, as well as then going out and keeping the music alive. Sure, Burton doesn't sing the songs. Sure, Randy doesn't play yeah. the guitar. But that doesn't mean the people in the other Guess Who, Kale and Peterson's Guess Who, aren't as good as yeah. or better yeah. than. So I leave it there. Let the, let the listening public decide. I've been yeah. at both. I've been, yeah. I've been with the real. I've been with the other and i'll tell you what it's all just as enjoyable they're all human beings they're all great guys they all have a right to make a living and when i got the call to do kale's guess who i said i'm doing it you know what and 17 shows later dan i did not regret it you gotta keep the name alive no matter what so if burton says something like ah those guys are uh, not doing the right thing, or I don't like it. Sure, you don't like it, but guess what? You had the opportunity, my friend. And by the way, all the listeners should know that every reunion of the Guess Who and every reunion of Bachman Turner Overdrive, I put them all together. Oh. I I did all the negotiations. I put all the parts and pieces, like you said earlier in the conversation, what do you do yeah. together to make it happen? And I didn't do it because I wanted my name in print. I did it because it's the right way to do it. If you're going to do it, do yeah, it no, I hear what real. You're saying. So then you got through uh, working with all these guys and, and got sort of later on. And then you, you had always worked with less vote through the years, right? Like it's our mutual friend less and yeah. Correct. Yeah. 30 plus years in the off yeah. season, Larry Branson. I took him to England. I took the buddy Holly guy there. We sold out the London, London Palladium at 60 pounds, which was $120. Wow. And I videoed the yeah. whole thing and I've got the MP3 audio of everything. And yeah. I'll tell you what, when you see uh, the announcer go, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together, uh, give a warm welcome to Larry Branson as Roy Orbison, and the whole place sold out the London Palladium stands up standing ovation, 
you know you've got something. Well, yeah, because Les, when I talked to Les, he talked about, you know, working with Roy Arborson. And I guess you, I don't know if you. Yes, of course. He was his manager. He was the only guy that Roy trusted. Yeah, you were around in those days, I guess. But uh, I was there. Yeah. But I was, uh, he was the manager and I did the road. Yeah. Uh, the shows we did. And the true story is we played, um, I think it was either Regina or Saskatoon, Dan. I can't remember. With Roy, the real yeah, band. Yeah. And we looked out from the side, from the monitor mix, and there was a guy in about the fourth row with his wife, and it was Branson. No. And he was lip-syncing every word to the Roy songs. And about a year later, when Les had his office downtown here in Vancouver, Larry Branson walks in. Yeah. And I shared the office with Terry Gray, on this specific day, Branson comes in and he says, uh, I do impersonations and I have an album and I recorded Pretty Woman and I hear you guys book talent and I might like to get on the Merrick Music Festival as a country guy or I might like to do some work. Well, Les hears this, calls him into the office and he says, uh, so what do you do? Well, I'm a singer and my wife plays keyboards, blah, blah, blah. And he says, uh... So have you got any promo? And he says, yeah, I got a cassette where I do Pretty Woman. So he plays Pretty Woman for Les, and Les looks astounded. And he says, well, that's not you. He says, all you've done is uh, taken that and uh, changed the music and everything, and you're using Roy's voice. So Larry says, no, that's me. So, Le <laughs> so Les says, if that's you, if that's you, sing a cappella for me in my office right now. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. And he blew less away. Well, in those days, the promoters and or managers had these one-year contract forms in their desk. Yeah. When Les hears Larry's a cappella of Roy, he literally pulls one of these contracts out, scratches out the one-year Dan puts a number five there, turns it around, turns it around, drops it across the table and has Larry sign. And then he promptly says, hey, guys, I just signed one of the most unbelievable Roy Orbison uh, sound-alikes and we're going to put him out on the road. Oh, very cool. And that was the beginning of Larry Branson and our friendship because I yeah. ended up taking Larry everywhere. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's where I, I connected with you guys yes, because we that's where we, you came in. Yeah, well, we did lots of those shows. Oh yeah, but, you did um, the Beatles stuff, you did uh, oh, Elvis yeah, did. stuff. You guys were so versatile; <laughs> like you could you could virtually cover anything, probably better than any of the other musicians that played on the records. Well, we were trying to make sure that we did. You know, I always looked at it like my friends, like Les is my friend, you guys are my friends. I want to do the best I can for you. But um, with Larry, you know, we did a ton of shows with him, but I, apparently. Uh, Roy Orbison had said that he want he he sanctioned that like he said oh yeah you know, can you have someone like so Les told me that story which I thought was pretty interesting like well oh, he definitely sanctioned that and when Roy passed Sam Orbison presents yeah. uh, Roy Orbison Larry Branson is Roy Orbison and the true story to that is the first time Les and myself ever met Sam was at the Commodore and at the Commodore was Alan Thicke. Margaret Trudeau, Red Robinson, Les, Sam Orbison, front row table. Hmm. I was backstage doing the stage managing and put Larry on. 
they did, he did the Roy Orbison set. Sam was sitting in the audience. At the end of the night, Les comes to me and he says, I want to bring Sam in. Now, before the show ended, I looked down from the side of the stage from the monitor mix. And there was Sam. He had these uh, big bottle top glasses. Attentively looking at uh, Larry, and I could see tears running down his cheeks hmm. while Larry was performing. Wow. Now, at the end of the night, Les comes and he says, I want to introduce Sam to Larry, so let's get him in this little alcove at the side of the dressing room, a small meet and greet. So he says, get some beer, get some food, and I'm going to bring these people. So Margaret Trudeau came, Alan Thicke came, Red came, of course, Les, and Sam. Larry comes out. He still, he just didn't have the jacket on. He had his shirt on. He had the medallion. He had the pants and he had the glasses in his top pocket. He comes out. Well, everybody does their thank you, thank you, thank you. Margaret goes, all these guys go except for Sam. So Sam says, Larry, he says, I want to say something to you. He says, and I want you to listen to this real good. He says, if I didn't know and personally have buried my brother. You are my brother. Hmm. That's what he said to wow. him. Tears started to flow again. A big hug. And he says, you, you will go a long way. And Les and I are putting together. Sam Orbison presents the, the Roy Orbison story. And you are the star. You are Roy. And for, that's where that got its start. Yeah. That perfect. night. And from that yeah. point on, Sam toured with us. Sam did the merchandise on the tour. And Larry, myself, Sam, and Les drove in one van, and the band drove in the other. I drove Les, Sam, and Larry in one van, and the band drove the other van. Yeah, very cool. No, that's good. Those those are good times. Well, listen, I need to take one more break and then we're going to come back and do our last segment, okay? I'm going to ask you about the the documentary, okay? So we're taking a we're going to take a break. We're talking to Marty Kramer about his many experiences in the music business and we'll be right back. Hi, it's Lori Dean of Dusty Discs Radio and I just wanted to stop by and tell you about America's Next Pop Icon. This is a video podcast where people call in and sing in hopes of being crowned America's Next Pop Icon. Now, even though the title has the word America in it, Canadians can and do enter this contest. And in fact, the show is hosted by Vancouver native Andrew Van Slee. The winners of each show appear in a final episode of the podcast for a chance to be named the official pop icon of the season. And each week, the show features a special guest artist plus singing tips with various industry professionals such as musicians and vocal coaches who provide important pointers on everything from writing a song to releasing music. Now this is a one-of-a-kind show meant for budding musicians and singers and it's a great way for them to showcase their talent and launch their career. Also, it is both entertaining and informative. This fantastic show for singers can be watched on its official website America's Next Pop Icon.com, or you can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get back to Dan Hare and this week's very special guest right here on Liner Notes. 
All right, we're back. We're talking to Marty Kramer about his many experiences and uh, some of our mutually shared experiences. Uh, we did lots of shows. I did lots of shows playing guitar for Larry Branson and those shows. Absolutely. And of course, uh, a lot of the other uh, um, tribute artists and those things. So so there's this Almost Almost Famous and there's a, a website, actually, I'll plug it right now, almostalmostfamous.com. And you're right involved in that. So after the big tours right. kind of wrapped up and stuff, you got into the, the tribute business because Les Vote right. was really involved exactly. in that. And and those shows sure, became yeah. really viable, right? There was lots of theaters. Sure. You could sell them out. Oh, and yeah. and so this this documentary, uh, you're doing the class of 59. And this right. is you doing a, a series of dates as you. And I think Pat Patch is there, right? Correct. Cross Canada. Eastern Canada. Eastern Canada tour. Yeah. You went to my hometown. You went to Guelph. Yeah, exactly. That's where, Guelph, that's where I'm from. Place. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you came across really well in that video. Right. I mean, you're a take charge guy. You're hurting cats, obviously, yeah, exactly. you're, you're, but you're determined to make it happen. And, you have to make and, it happen. Uh, you're on the road. You've got a deadline. And it's not like it used to be one lane, 20 cars. It's 50 million cars now, six, yeah. eight lanes, strange places. Thank God for GPS. In the old days, we used to sit and have a navigator with a map. A map yeah, guy is going... Where do you turn? Where, uh, Dan, where do I turn? Oh, you just missed a turn and you got to drive 20 miles before an exit and drive back and then you're late. So yeah, quite, quite the challenge, my friend. Quite it's high pressure, right? And, and how many dates? You, you did lots of dates, right? And, and of course, when you're doing those tours, you want to do as many back-to-backs as you can because exactly. the layovers are, layovers are expensive, right? Days off Fair. cost you money, Fair. right? Yeah, everything you make, you lose. You're right. Yeah. So uh, I can see the, the whole sort of driving force and then Patch is there too, right? Yeah. Uh, Mike, the best. Mike, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mike Patchelock, the best. You couldn't find a better uh, guy to be there. He keeps it together uh, from the stage end. I keep it together from the band end and together yeah. uh, we work. And of course we lock horns because he's frustrated. I'm frustrated. He's got a deadline. He's got to load in. <laughs> he's got to load out. He's got a sound check. And when you're dealing with individual personalities uh, some of them, some of them respect it. The majority do that, but there's always those ones that are going to challenge you on anything. It doesn't matter what yeah. they're going to challenge you. And yeah. that's uh, when it becomes really tough. Well, like it's, I mean, Patch is a little uptight in there and you have your moments, but you're, you're, you're making it go. I mean, you're the guy, right? Everything, yeah. everything comes back to you, right? Yeah. If anything oh, goes yeah. wrong or well, anything yeah, doesn't happen. come back to me because it doesn't, the rock doesn't roll without me. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I worked with you a lot, so, and I always yeah. appreciated it. So, you know, I, I think I got cheeky with you a few times, but well, the thing is, I, <laughs> but, but you got to understand you're, you're the band leader. Yeah. You've got to know things. And I, you know, these people, uh, the best advice I can give the listeners, if you ever get into this business, which I think it's few and far between now, and I don't think there'll ever be that era of you and I again, so to speak, yeah. it's, it's behind us, but it's great to keep it alive with these interviews that you're doing and everything. Thank you very much. And the bottom line is this, that you've got to do it right. And you've got to keep everybody in the loop. You've got to... The band has to know what they're performing and the songs, which constitutes a set list and rehearsals. I have to know where you guys are staying. and You have to have an itinerary for your wife or girlfriend. So it's, it's beyond just saying, hey, Dan, can you and the guys do it? And you say, yeah, Marty, we'd love to do it. Where? Uh, two weeks. Okay, we're in. Yeah, Not yeah. even knowing where you're going. And yeah. then me phoning and saying, hey, Dan, you know, the first three are... Uh, we're doing Vancouver, then we're going to go over the island, 
Then we're going to do Nanaimo. Then we're going to Newfoundland. Yeah. And you go, what? <laughs> How are we going there? We're driving. Are you crazy? We're driving six days from the West Coast <laughs> to the East Coast, and we're not playing? Well, I, I'm going to see what I can do, Dan. And then, yeah. then you go, well, wait a second. I'm getting three paydays here for my guys. I've hired them for two weeks, and Marty's telling me that he's only got paid for three. Yeah. Now, what's up? Now, do you jump ship or do you stay? What do I do? So consequently, you can't uh, maneuver the ship through the canal without jackknifing. Uh, you've got to go straight and you've got to know where you're going. And there can only be one person to do that. And then you need everybody else. Everybody is just as important. You as the band leader and guitar player, your band, Patch, every person. That's why from the time I arrive at a concert hall or a venue till the time we leave, I have the utmost respect for everybody that's working that show. Well, and the thing is, you and I always got along great just because of the, we're kind of on the same page right? yes, like as, as the band leader. Like, I mean, you know, when, if it's a lobby call at eight o'clock or it's a sound check call at three o'clock or a stage call at, at seven 30, I don't care what it is. Like if, if my guy, my guys are going to be there, I'm, you'll never have a problem with me. Oh no, your guys were impeccable. I, I can't say enough about, about your bands and configurations, no matter whether it was a trio uh, or, or vocal rehearsals or, or BJ vocals or whatever, all of it was was done right. Well, I appreciate that. All the merit stuff too. So I mean that that, that uh, eases a lot of restrict, you know, a lot of, uh, of problems, right? Oh yeah, having that understanding with the band is is very important. Having yeah. a positive relationship, but you know what? Not overstepping it though, like we discussed earlier. And you know, if you've got the right people, you don't have to chaperone. But when I had the wrong people, I had to chaperone, which means that let's say I should be closing out the day and settling down and reviewing the next day. Instead, I'm in a bar or I'm at a house party chaperoning the singers because they're out of control. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've seen that whole thing, and it's real tough because you're you're doing back to back shows again, right? Exactly. So you got to get the next day, you got to get up. So the lobby calls, I mean, people think it's it's kind of a it's sort of a, a suggested number. Like if the lobby calls eight o'clock and everybody isn't there at eight o'clock, there's going to be an argument because yeah, but it also <laughs> it also uh, steps into your time as well. Yeah. It's not yeah. fair to you. It's not fair to those there yeah. that are waiting. Well, it sounds it sounds a bit harsh, but when you've got two vans waiting and there's ten or fifteen or how many ever people in the, right, on the exactly. tour and stuff. So in this um, documentary, it comes out really well. And then of course Lance doing the Jerry Lee Lewis. Now I, I did lots of shows at Lance. I have lots of Lance stories, but uh, you know he I, I can see what you said on there. You said like a, like the the work that you have to put into that person is 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 not worth it. In your view, you just oh said, no, I spent twelve years with yeah. that kid, and God's truth. When I used to take them out into the lobby for the applause and do the merchandise and everything, people would say, uh, uh, you're a very talented boy. Where did you acquire your talent? And he'd point to me. <laughs> and I didn't know at first what he's doing. And these people would say, why are you pointing to him? And he said, because he's my dad. <laughs> and people actually thought that I was Lance's dad. And they'd come up to me and they'd say, Mr. Lipinski, you've done a wonderful job uh, with your son. 
And I said, well, thank you very much. But yet the band, like you might have introduced me as a tour manager slash road manager 20 minutes before yeah. at the end of the night before the encore. But you know, perception, yeah. Dan, as yeah. you well know, well, it's gone. Once the show is over and people flock out into that lobby, they've forgotten everything that went on inside. Now is their opportunity to shine with the artist. Yeah. And you could tell them anything. Anything you wanted to tell them right there and then, and they would actually believe you. Well, Lance is, was a pretty high maintenance guy. I mean, we we played with him lots, and and I I wasn't very happy with. That. I said to Lance, "No, why times. would you be? I don't think anybody was. I don't. The performers more so than yourself, uh, as the band leader. Well, but that's right. You yeah. got the performers turning against the artist, and you've got these how should we say outbursts two minutes into oh. the van, and people are reaching over ready to throw punches and yeah. knock the guy out or listen you can't punch a guy in the face in a van <laughs> that's got to sing jerry lee lewis or you can't jump yeah. on his hand when he's getting or slam the door on his hand when he's getting into the van you can't yeah. do that it's but when he drives you to that point dan well i've I've seen you in action lots and trying to make these things happen and try, again, trying to be diplomatic. I guess with the, with the uh, impersonators, you can be a little more chippy with them in the sense that you say like, we got theater shows here. We got a bunch in a row. You got to do what you got to do. I in need the tribute world. When you have those artists with you, I would always say something to the effect, listen, you're impersonating Fats Domino. Okay. You're not Fats Domino. I've worked with Fats Domino and I will tell you this, Fats Domino never behaved like this. And I don't like it. So let's clean this up. Let's clean this up right away. Let's nip this. Because if you take a negative and make it a positive early in the show, even if it's just one show or a weekend, it's even worse if it's a tour. Because if it carries and it gets in, it's like a virus. It infects the whole troop. And everybody is affected. Then everybody's talking behind the scenes. What did he say to him? Is he going to sing good tonight? Did he ream him out? Uh, yeah. uh, why are they arguing over there? How come they're not buddy-buddy, hand-in-hand? Everybody observes. Yeah. I have this sixth sense from the time I walk around the corner onto the stage that before I walk there, I like to know, ah, I see Dan, I see the band on the other side, I've got a band signal or a band intro, Dan goes out, introduces the band. We're going to play this music for you tonight, folks. Or hi, we're March Hare. We back up the legends, whatever. So I've got help from guys like you, thank God, to make it my job easier. You guys make my job easier. But when I don't have that, and I don't have that luxury, when I don't have guys like yourself out there and professional bandmates like you have and carry with you, then if I just get a put together band for lack of better words uh, in a pickup city or a pickup band, guess what? I'm in trouble. I got to start from square one. Will this guy know it? Will this guy not know it? Th does he care? And then the artist right away, well, guess what? They don't know that. We're not doing that. What do you mean you're not doing that? It's the biggest song of the artist's career and you're not going to do it. I'm not doing it. So already you've got the house is sold out and you've got an artist that isn't going to sing the biggest hit. 
Yeah. You know, I've seen you in the middle of lots of those. And then of course up in Merritt too. So, so let me ask you just a couple other quick things. You've, you've got lots of memorabilia, like you've collected lots of video and pictures and stuff. I see you post a bunch of that stuff online sure. too sometimes, right? It. So are you working on a, some kind of a book or some kind of a movie or? I've got the book. Yeah. The book is done. Oh, okay. It's 330 pages. Wow. Uh, it's called Kramer. Yeah. And it's 150 of the prime stories. I highly doubt if anybody has ever heard them because I've never reiterated or told anybody any of them. Okay. And when's that going to be out? Well, with COVID, I had it all lined up to go to an American publisher and we had to put it on hold. Uh, a very good friend of mine, an entertainment lawyer, did all the interviews with me, such as what you're doing, yeah. tabulated them all, nice. transcribed them into print, brought me the rough draft of the book. We corrected it all. I proofread it. And to coincide with every story, Dan, is an 8 by 10 signed to me. Nice. By that artist. Oh, very so, cool. But it goes right from, uh, say, Peggy Lee, uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. to uh, uh, Yul Brynner, uh, Anthony Quinn, uh, to ZZ, to Ringo, to the Stones, uh, you name it, uh, lyricists, dancers, magicians, writers, they're all in there. None of them, those stories have never been told uh, on air or via video. So I'm looking forward to it. It's 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 here. Yeah. I have oh, good. I have the rough, yeah. and it's definitely called uh, uh, Kramer. Kramer. Yeah, and uh, that's exactly what it's called. And I in 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 the inner uh, th in one of the shots, which I thought was really apropos, I have a full length stand up photo of of Kramer from Seinfeld. Oh, cool! And I'm holding my hand is around the frame of that and yeah. I'm standing beside him. Oh, cool. So just for our listeners that, that, that don't know, one thing that you've done that was extra cool that a lot of people wouldn't have done is you've documented a lot of your career. Like you, you've made a point of getting pictures and videos and signed. Yeah, and, everything. And, and All 27 years of Burton, I have. Yeah. All 20 years of Randy, I yeah. have. Every show, uh, the Ringo rehearsals, uh, the stone, everything. I go right back. I go right back to, uh, I have, which will, I mean, photo wise, yeah. uh, will appear. It's unpublished. Uh, there's a picture of my, uh, of Mick Jagger in the dressing room at the Winnipeg arena. No. The Devron's open for the stones. Okay. And the guy that did the stones at the time, uh, was the manager was a a Andrew Lou Goldham. And he said to me, Mati, he says, I need you to do what you do for your band, for my guys. And I said, what's that? And he says, get them from the dressing room to the stage because I'll be there and I haven't got time. So could you do it? You're here because yeah. you are opening and you've got time. So I said, sure. So in those days, there was a Polaroid camera. So I took Polaroids and then you'd, pull them out, you'd coat them down, and yeah. then you could have them signed. Yeah. So cool. I had Mick Jagger sign this Polaroid, and it says to Marty, Mick Jagger, 
with the date like 1966. Cool. Now, when I ended up doing the Stones tours, I brought that to him and I showed that to him. And this was like the Steel Wheels tour, uh, uh, the uh, Babylon uh, tour, uh, SARS, all this kind of stuff where I went in and I hung with those guys. And there's all sorts of, uh, how shall we say, little tributaries running off the main uh, flow. Uh, yeah. with Bill Wyman when he wrote his book and he was staying in the same hotel as the Stones were where we were for SARS. And he comes, here's big guys. They show up, they show up in a town car with a publicist, nobody there to meet them, no nothing. I happen to be outside waiting for the tour bus driver to come around to pick us up. Who shows up? Bill Wyman. I said, holy crap, Bill Wyman, maybe he's going to appear on SARS. I didn't know he was there for a book signing, but I thought, the least I can do is come up. I knew I knew him, and I came up and I said hi there. And he said hi, mate. And I said, uh, the boys are in the hotel. He said, what boys? I said the Stones. He says, doesn't matter. He says I'm going up to a suite and I'm doing a book signing. So his publicist oh. had two boxes of books. I loaded them up, put them on the cart, Dan. Went up yeah. with her. Went up to the suite. He went into the suite. I went into this room adjacent to it opened the boxes of books for her. There were some eight foot tables there. I put the books out. She says, one minute, please. She goes, grabs a book, goes in, gets it signed for me, comes back. She says, this is for you. Have a nice day. Oh, wow. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, that's that kind neat, of stuff. Man. But I definitely document everything. The Devrons, yeah. every guest who reunion, every rehearsal, every yeah. single thing. Bruce Allen in the dressing room with Brian Adams and Loverboy. And it's all there. And I've offered it, you know, I've got all the mountain footage. I've got uh seven camera shoot of mountain, which I own. I've got uh, uh, Ringo, the rehearsal in the press conference here at the New York theater in Vancouver. I gave it to him. Yeah. I asked him permission to shoot it. I gave it to him at the end of the press conference. I said, here, I'm driving you back to the hotel. I called him Richie. I said, Richie, I said, I want you to have this. I said, you should watch it and see the after effect of this press conference and everything. The next morning when I picked him up to take him to the airport with his wife, Barbara, to fly to LA because we were going to Japan the next day, he says to me, here. I said, what's this? He says, for you. I says, what? He said, the VHS. He says, what do I need this for? He says, two days from now, we start we start the rehearsal. I, I mean, the shows, pardon me. He says, we start the shows. This is yours. He says, you shot it. I want you to ha have it. He says, by the way, great yeah. job. I have the only footage of that band at the rehearsal oh, because cool. what happened was every Ringo Starr and All-Star band was recorded and released on DVD. The tour that I did in 1995, Dan, with him uh, in Japan for two weeks and 40 nights in America never got recorded due to uh, a family matter, yeah. urgent family matter, in, uh, from Ringo's side, and we had to abort. Uh, so, and then we could never put it back together again. We tried to put it back together again at a later date in New York, but as it would be, uh, some of the people in that band weren't available because they were touring again. So, uh, quite an interesting thing. And uh, we did Budokan, and we did all these places where it's forbidden, Dan, to shoot anything. So, I got the producer which is unheard of in Japan to dub me 
a copy, oh. and I have it. Yeah, Ringo Starr and the All-Star Band live in Budokan with me putting them on stage and that, which I thought was pretty cool because what happens in Japan stays in Japan. You get two plays out yeah. of it. So the ownership becomes the Japanese government. Ringo cannot get it no matter what. Oh, interesting. So I feel very, very fortunate over the years to have gotten stuff from people in higher places towards me. But on the other side of the coin, I don't want it to appear that I'm looking for anything here because I'm not. This is my personal archive, like you stated earlier, and I'm keeping that for who knows what. I've got the same scenario with Randy and Neil Young when we shot Any Road, when we went to Neil's uh, uh, ranch and we recorded there for three days and Neil played the best grunge in the world and Randy says, we got to do a two-camera shoot with Neil. I says, you don't just say you've got to do a two-camera shoot with Neil. You're talking to Neil Young, Randy. So he says, well, you talk to him. So I talked to him, and I asked him, can we do this? He said, yes. At the end of the day, Neil says to me, I want you to know one thing. If I ever see this commercially, he says, you'll regret the day you were born. <laughs> and I said, I swear to you, Neil, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. I'm literally standing five feet away from him, recording him in his studio. So yeah. those are the kind of things that I value, Dan, in my uh, career, uh, personal. I will yeah. never bite the hand that feeds me. And that's my advice to everybody in this business. Just do your thing. Shoot from the hip. Be a straight shooter. Be respectful. Take a negative. Make it a positive, And you'll end up having a nice career. I'm 73 years old now. There's no skeletons in my closet. And nobody can come to me and say, you know what? You did me wrong. Yeah. I did nobody yeah. wrong. Well, uh, yeah, I can uh, I can attest to that as far as I as I know you. And, and that's and, a long and, time. Again, and that's a long time. And and for documenting everything is is kind of cool because it's over 50 years, 60 years, I guess, almost. Oh, now. easy. 60 years. Yeah. It goes from every, every, it goes from uh, cassette to, uh, uh, like, it's even reel to reel. Cassette. Uh, not a track, but uh, yeah. after that, it goes to every format: beta, VHS, Handycam, uh, MIDI. You name it. Any format. I all. And here's the beauty of it all, Dan. I have every camera that every segment of documentation was shot on. Wow. So for playback, I don't have to go to somebody to try and find those cameras to play it back. Oh, perfect. So I've got it all. So I just wanted to ask you too, like about what you're doing that you do in the interviews with you and Colin Weeb. Colin Weeb yes. played with Randy for years, as you had yeah, said Paul earlier. Jans before that. And then I brought Colin yeah. there and like the true story is Randy and I saw him uh, singing uh, uh, with Paul Jans and everything. And then he was doing some cover songs in a bar. And one of them happened to be one of the guess who songs. And Randy said to me, who's that? And I said, it's uh, Colin uh, Weeb from Paul Jan's band. He says, get him. I yeah. said, what do you mean get him? He says, I want him in my band. Oh. And I approached Randy, uh, pardon me, I approached Colin, and I said, look, great job. I understand you're with Paul Jan's. You recorded with Paul Jan's. I says, how would you like to uh, be in the Randy Backman band? He said, I'd love to. So I said, you're in. No. And then thus, thus culminating a 25-year relationship with Colin. Yeah, nice. And and so you're doing this let's talk so let's do a promo for that. Then it's let's talk rock.ca, you said that you go into the dressing rooms and 
and interview people? We go into the dress rooms, we go to Merritt, yeah. we go to uh, the after shows, the before shows, to the airport, wherever. And the beauty of that, Dan, is we can go from let's talk rock to let's talk automobiles, to let's talk collectibles, to let's talk toys, to let's talk music, to let's talk current affairs. Whatever we want to talk about, there's more than enough people. Here's here's a good one for the listeners. The first time ever on tape in Winnipeg, ever, both bass players for the Guess Who, the only two bass players, Jim Cale and Bill Wallace, in the same room being interviewed by... Colin and myself, and the true fact of the uh, interview, which we found out, was that neither Kale or Wallace had ever played on the same stage together or oh, been man. in the same room together ever. Oh, interesting! And I put that together. Oh, very cool. So, yeah, let's talk. Uh, let's talk rockets. Let's talk. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Well, and people people can check that out. So, I really oh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today, Marty, and uh, and uh, sharing all your stories. So, what's next for you? You're gonna once the COVID thing wraps up, you're gonna get your book well, out. You're gonna. There was discussion. There was yeah, the book will definitely come. There was discussion, uh, uh, Dan, uh, as early as a couple of days ago with Les. Yeah. About hopefully if COVID clears itself up and everybody gets their vaccinations, that we'll do the Christmas special, the Buddy Holly, Holly Jolly Christmas. But you know as well as I do, Dan, if you've got a 500-seater and you can only maximize 200, or if you've got a a 1,000-seater and you can only maximize 200, you can't make any money. The artist has got to get paid. The band's got to get paid. And you know you can't go backwards, my friend. If if your if your players are getting a fair salary, you can't say to them, "Well, guess what? In order for you to appear on this stage, you have to play for half." Yeah. That's not right. Yeah. So I don't know, Dan. I'm hoping that they do it, but you know, people like Les, the money people, we have to respect that. Yeah. The promoters yeah. uh, have been finished for yeah. a couple of years. They haven't had any source of revenue. Yeah. And if they made money before and they had a little socked away, great. But if they didn't, how does a guy with no revenue say, okay, it's good to go? Yeah. Everybody can play now. Yeah. The venues aren't there, Dan. The clubs have closed down. The big yeah. theaters, you've got to book them. And you know there's going to be a mass race to get dates. So are you going to go out and do some more touring? Are you going to do some more theater shows? I'd love to headman something if there's something there. I've thought of uh, uh, trying to muster the troops, for lack of better words, and put stuff together. But you know what? It's a great pipe dream. But a pipe dream is uh, a far cry from a reality now. Well, we'll see. We'll see once. We have to try it. I'd love to say yes to you and to the listeners and say, we're going to be back stronger than ever. I'm going to be back stronger than ever. Yeah, so hopefully by the fall, maybe by next year, things will open up again and, and we'll get back to it. But right. I hope so for all concerns, yourself, your band, all the guys, everybody. And you know what? If it doesn't, if it doesn't, I'm not too much worried about it for myself. I care about all the other musicians and that. But you know what? If I don't set foot on another stage or take out another tour, I don't think anybody could attest to the longevity and the artistry that I was fortunate enough in my lifetime 
to be associated with. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a good word. And so I appreciate you taking the time and sharing a bunch of that stuff with us. And, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe there'll be something going on, maybe not, but uh, you've... And maybe you'll be there with us. Well, maybe, and uh, and I'm hungry. Like, I, I'm I'm waiting for... Yeah, we're all hungry, I'm, my friend. I'm waiting for it to open back up. I'm, I'm rare to go, so... But yeah. with good guys like you there, uh, we stand to check. Well, I appreciate that. Many thanks to my guest, Marty Kramer, for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his vast and lengthy career. Uh, check out almostalmostfamous.com and letstalkrock.ca with Colin and Marty. That's great. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And you can also become a member if you'd like notifications and other insider information and perks. Uh, we'd love to have you on board and we invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, to hear music from the Canadian artists that we talk about on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.